Today on The Black Goat, we talk about personality tests, the bad ones that everyone loves and the good ones that only we do, and a letter about bringing up open science when you're applying to grad school. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava, and I think I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier, but honestly, I'm not quite sure. Yeah, could be imposters. We found voice doubles. Yeah, we only well, have to find one, and they're doing both voices. <laughs> Normally, like people say they can't tell you two apart, and I'm like, well, I can because you're on video, but today it's just like you guys are a blur. So I, I had an eye appointment this morning, and I had my eyes dilated, and so everything. It's it's funny because they tell you you can drive home, and, and you know I, I know. put on sunglasses, and I can sort of drive home, but it's like like is this really legit yeah. that I can drive home with my yeah, eyes dilated? Yeah, I always wonder that. I had the same thing when I had my thyroid biopsied, and then they had to go in like 17 times to get a sample. And then, like, yeah, I drove myself there because I didn't think it was a big deal, but I couldn't turn my head, so I had to drive home and like turn my whole body. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seven. That sounds like a lot of times. Yeah, it was not pleasant. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So I'm. Uh, I the reason I had to go in is because I'm getting old. And the way that I know that I'm getting old is I'm getting fucking cataracts. <laughs> I feel like that's the thing that cats get, but maybe that's just because it starts with the word cat. <laughs> <laughs> this is like some weird medical version of Dennis the Dentist, right? It's just like cats, cats get, get cataracts. cataracts. <laughs> I feel like I've known cats that had cataracts. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that you have no, cataracts. No, please go ahead. Make fun of my medical condition. It's okay. I don't mind at all. No, apparently I'm like super young for them, uh, but, uh, you know, shit happens and whatever. Um, but it is, it's like, it's weird to, at age, I mean, I'm 45 years old and it's weird at age 45 to have this person, th- this thing that I associate with, with being an old person. Um, but I guess I'm, I am kind of getting old. Yeah. It it's happens brutal. every year. I get a year older. <laughs> is there truth to the idea that like what you... This, surely this is true, right? That what you use your eyes for affects like how quickly they age in your vision and stuff. Like if you're in front of a computer screen or you like try to read in low light, does it actually make your vision worse? So my understanding of the cataracts is that there's not there are certain medical conditions that can cause them, like diabetes. But for most people, they don't really know why they happen. They just happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've heard I've heard what you say and. Uh, you know, just about like vision, like having yeah. good and bad vision. And I actually don't know. That's a really good question. Like, I don't know if that's just yeah, like I an old folktale. Or... In like ninth grade, when I took keyboarding class, they would make us stop and focus on something far away because they thought like it was going to be really bad for our eyes if we did an hour straight of just keyboarding. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Imagine now like yeah. <laughs> o- only looking at a screen for an hour yeah. seems like such a... Yeah. <laughs> Like it's like shit. I, they, you know, they you go in for the eye appointment. They say like, how much of your day do you spend looking at screens? And I was like, all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I I think I managed to put my phone down when I brush my teeth. That's about <laughs> sometimes. it. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes, yeah, yeah, uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I've also noticed signs of getting older recently. I don't have cataracts yet, thankfully, but um, that I know of. Um, but so I think my my sign of getting older is more embarrassing. So like I need to pee like every 45 minutes now, <laughs> um, which was not the case before. Um, and it's inconvenient. 
yeah, it's messing with my life. I can't drink without getting hungover. Like, I can't yeah, have two also, drinks anymore. It sucks. I know. I have that now, too. Yeah. Um, getting old, man. Yeah. It is. Bummer. Yeah. And the peeing thing, too, I hear that once you have a baby, then you need to pee more often. So if I have a baby, I'm going to have to pee, like, every 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good reason not to have a baby. <laughs> the things they it don't tell like, you like hard work looking after a baby and peeing all the time yeah. i know well especially because like a lot of babies won't let you go to the bathroom you know like especially with like when i mean my kid you know like a lot of kids you, you know he went through a period where you know when they're like they're mobile especially mm-hmm. um but like really little like one or two or whatever and, you know, there there were just times when, like, Kristen or I would be, like, pooping, and he would just be like, well, I'm just going to hang out in here, because yeah. I don't, I, I, you My know, dog does that, too. You know, <laughs> just like, are you sure you want to be in here? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> are you really sure? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I it's, wanted to get not a, gonna be pleasant. a Newfoundland dog, true. actually, people I talked to said, like, you need a large bathroom if you're going to have a Newfoundland, because they follow you everywhere, and they, like, they'll want to come into the bathroom with you, <laughs> and it turned out to be true with Hugo. Although he's only part yeah. Newfoundland. Yeah. I like and to make parallels between babies and dogs. I'm sure all my friends really appreciate it. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I people, know, I I think people like when you try to identify with them by relating your experience <laughs> yeah. with your dog to their experiences with their kids. I hope so. There, there was, a, there was the an episode a few ago where you, you like... You did you did that and you also compared having a kid to having a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I was just sitting there going like, are we going to get some angry emails about this? Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, there, there's a, I've thought about this a lot because there's, um, uh, especially when we first had our kid, but like, there is a certain, some, some people, certainly not everybody, but some people get kind of sanctimonious about being parents and, and what a wonderful thing it is. And, uh, you know, there, there's like, I don't know, it, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to down, downgrade it to like being like having a hobby or whatever. Um, it is like my experience of it is that it, there is something qualitatively different, but I'm also, I'm really like, I don't want to be one of those people who, who are like, your life won't be fulfilled unless you have a child. It's the most wonderful yeah. thing. It's like, no, it's a, it's like a thing you do and it's, it's like, and it's a thing other people don't do and don't fucking feel superior over mm-hmm. it. Um, but I don't know. But I, I, what's hard for me is, like, I really – I feel pretty strongly about that. Like, I really don't think it's something to be sanctimonious over. But it's not, like, other things <laughs> that I've done in my life either. Yeah, <laughs> and I so I can't, like I, – so I can sort of understand the impulse to, like, yeah. you know, want to say it's special. I do but, think it's yeah, more yeah. probably more true about having kids than other experiences that if you haven't done it, you can't imagine what it's like. I mean, to some extent, that's true of many experiences. But I, I do believe that it's, like – way more true about having a kid than about just about any other experience yeah i mean i have to pee every 10 minutes now (laughs) (laughs) why don't people talk about this more (laughs) it's sympathy pee for me (laughs) also i don't think i've ever heard your uh west coast self-help guru voice sanjay i really like it (laughs) how how have we how have we been doing a podcast for a year and a half and that hasn't come out that's my uh that's uh, that might come out later in the episode when we talk about personality. <laughs> I don't know. I think also part of my like making light of having a kid comes from the fact that my parents like kind of 
they joke about it a lot. Like when I got a puppy for the first time and I was like completely overwhelmed and I called my mom and I was like, I think I made a mistake. I don't think I can handle this. She was like, oh, don't worry. I felt that way when I had you guys. <laughs> um, so I think like my parents didn't glamorize it or make it seem like this thing that it's always wonderful and blah, blah, blah. Like they made it, they made it like clear that there are annoyances that seem to me to parallel a lot, like other kind of life annoyances and stresses and things like that. Um, and I'm sure they're different in their own way, but it's, yeah, like those things still exist with having a kid, even though overall most people are very happy that they have their kids. Yeah, well, that, you know, that's one of the things that, yeah, I mean, you were saying you don't know what it's like until you do it. And that's definitely true. But I think that's, I think to some extent that's exacerbated by some people feeling like it's somehow, you know, there's because that they have this sort of like, it's almost this sacred thing that they people don't talk about the hard parts about it as much or some people don't. And like one of the things that we found incredibly valuable and that we've tried to do for other people is not, not in a derogatory way, but to to just be honest with people, you know, in conversations Mm -hmm. about what the tough parts of it are like, because yeah, like, you know, people, and, and obviously like for some people it's way easier and for some people it's way harder. So there's legitimate variation, but like, some of the hard parts were really hard Mm -hmm. and thank goodness like some of our friends had warned us that you know you're sometimes you're going to feel really terrible and that that's okay you know um and and i'm i'm sure like you know uh, i'm sure like picking up banjo is exactly the same thing right (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i feel like i have a lot of insight into how difficult parenting would be ever since i started making sourdough bread you know, like you have to you have to feed the starter once a week. You know, it's pretty pretty similar. Right? So yeah, except like I fucking gave up on my sourdough. <laughs> I, it's I, I've got this like it's turning into. I I did this about two weeks ago. I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna make. I like saw somebody like posted a fucking picture of their sourdough on Twitter, and I was like I'm gonna do that. And and uh, it kind of like sort of you know. And now I haven't fed it in like I'm. It's on the counter, so it's supposed to be fed every day, and it's I haven't fed it in like four or five days, and I have a feeling it's just turned into a flour brick by yeah. now because it's like dried out. And so whatever. the the headline for our episode is going to be how making sourdough bread is harder than raising kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you can give up on it. Yeah, I mean, right. I guess you can give up on your kids too. But <laughs> it doesn't feel quite the same. I guess you can. Um, mm. I've never really thought, hmm. <laughs> Just kidding. My son actually listens to this every once in a while. And so uh, I have to, you know, I have to be clear what I'm joking about. Mm. Hi, Lincoln. <laughs> three weeks from now. Anyway. Should we do our letter? Yeah, maybe we should actually mention that we're recording this episode like way earlier than we usually do. So if like many, many things change in the world between now and then, don't blame us. Yeah, right. maybe there will be a personality test that everyone likes and is scientifically valid by then. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's do our letter. Um, hey, Black Goaters. I'm applying for PhD programs this year and I'm wondering how to broach the subject of open science. Few faculty state whether they like or hate the open science movement, so I'm nervous about bringing up the subject, particularly to a person who has contributed to a concept in psychology that has been somewhat hurt by, the, by open science practices. I don't necessarily think that a faculty member opposing open science would be a deal breaker, but it is certainly something I want to incorporate into my own research practices and to consider in applying. Studying open science isn't my primary research interest, but I do keep up to date on recent publications and blogs. 
How can I bring up open science in a meaningful way to potential advisors? And how can I navigate any disagreements that may come up regarding the subject? Thanks for your help, aspiring scholar. So my, I wish I could have a dialogue with aspiring scholar because I want to know why it's not a deal breaker. <laughs> like I could imagine well, if you really, really, really want to study topic X and there's only like three people that study topic X and they're all anti-open science and it's more important to you to study topic X than to work with someone who's pro-open science. Okay. But in any other circumstance where you have options that are above threshold that include some people that oppose open science and some people that don't, don't go work with the person who opposes open science if you are pro-open science. Like, I think that's going to make your life so much more difficult. Yeah, I wonder if as an undergraduate student about to apply for graduate school, it's less clear what that decision would mean for them um, than yeah. it would be for us. You know what I mean? So Yeah. Uh, which, I mean, is all the more reason why you should explain why that would be a big mistake. Yeah, well, I also think a lot of people underestimate how much some people who oppose open science, like, actually really oppose it and are really, like, <clears throat> not just, like, quietly opposing it, but, like, get angry or try to, like, throw up obstacles or things like that. So I think one important thing to consider is like, how would you feel working with somebody who like was really defensive about open science practices and like actively was trying to put obstacles in the way of these things becoming more common, not just in their own lab, but in the field in general, like those people exist. And I think mm -hmm. they're less open about it than the people who are for open science. Like many times when they're quoted in newspaper articles they're quoted anonymously <laughs> um right. but they do exist and so i think it's easy to underestimate like that and I, I don't know how common it is but there are people out there who are very against it and who are gonna like it's gonna cause a lot of tension if you right. really want to pre-register and you're in their lab yeah so I, w I just i would just say i think that that exists i think it's a big deal and i think if it's important to you that's probably not a place that you want to compromise yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think there's probably a spectrum. And so it's it's not clear to me what part of the spectrum this person's thinking. And I think, I think it's helpful to let them know that, yeah, sometimes people, you know, what they might say when you ask them a question is different than what they're actually willing to do and go along with. And, yeah. it, and that, that disconnect can go in both directions. Mm -hmm. But I think often it is that they're they're more hesitant in their behavior than that, you know, they're willing to sort of give lip service to something um, or to not be as extreme. I think also, you know, the, I mean, in a general sense, like what things should and shouldn't be deal breakers when you're applying to graduate school is, is an important thing to think about. And I do think it's hard to know, to put yourself into like, what's that going to be like a year or two or five years from now? Um, and, you know, when you talk to people who, I mean, all three of us have been around long enough that we started doing research before open science became a big deal in psychology. And we've had, you know, we've talked on previous episodes about this, that like, there always was, I think, to varying extents, some people were like, consciously aware, like what people are doing in this field is wrong, and we shouldn't do it. And then other people had this sense of unease. Um, and that, that they sort of talk themselves into doing things that part of them knew they shouldn't be doing. And I think it's going to be, and I think neither of those is ideal, but I think more and more it's going to be, it's, we've gotten to the point where it's not going to be the like just unease because now it's all out in the open, right? Mm -hmm. It's been discussed. And so, you know, you might tell yourself, oh, well, you know, I want to study topic X and this person's leading expert on topic X 
and I can I can sort of figure out how to get along in the lab and and then when I'm out of graduate school I can do research the way I want to but I think in some ways it's it's like no that that's actually every time or or that you might think like oh I'll just in my projects I'll do what I want to do and and I think if I were not yet in graduate school I think it would be pretty easy to underestimate how often it's going to come up how much this is like your advisor is going to be involved and how you actually do the work it's going to be for a very long period of your life and so I wouldn't underestimate being pressured to do things that you believe are not good ways of doing science and that that even start to if it starts to raise your your ethical radar your moral radar that is a really crappy position to be in for a long time and it depends like what we mean by open science like if we mean something very um like behavior oriented that's one thing so like what behaviors are important to you it would be good for you to have an advisor who's who has demonstrated a willingness to engage in those behaviors if that's like posting preprints or pre-registering or whatever but i think for me i think my strong reaction is because i'm interpreting this on a deeper level that it's like what do they count as good evidence yeah. and if you don't agree with your advisor is about what counts as good evidence that's so fundamental like it's so hard mm-hmm. to get around that and maybe you'll be able to teach your advisor something and they'll have an open mind and that's great. And I actually think that's happening in a lot of labs right now. And like we owe so much to those grad students who are educating their own advisors. That's not how it should have to work, but I think there's a lot of that happening and I'm really appreciative for the graduate students who are doing that work, but I I wouldn't necessarily choose that for myself if I was starting grad school. Like it would be nice if my advisor could teach me how to interpret evidence rather than the other way around. Mm-hmm. Well, and, yeah, and like, I mean, I think that the idea that your advisor is going to teach you is really important because like you, you, you know, this person, obviously, if they're talking about open science, they know some stuff about it already. But you rely so much on like informally having conversations with someone and, you know, your advisor is going to be like, yeah, follow up on this line of work, these studies out of this lab, because I think they're really good. And mm-hmm. you could end up spending a year or two you know, based in part on the influence of your advisor's judgment, because often these things are ambiguous. It's not like you with an undergraduate education or a year or two of grad school and reading some blogs and listening to our podcast are going to be like absolutely <laughs> rock solid substitute. confidence. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so you could, you know, um, and you could end up falling into an area where the only way to be productive is to p-hack your way right. through it. Um and that's and you're going to rely on your advisor's guidance to to deal with those things. And you're also yeah. going to need cover if you get pushback from like editors or reviewers and things like that. And it helps to have a more senior person who's willing to go to bat for you and say, no, we're not going to do that subgroup analysis that you really want us to do because that would be p hacking or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you can do it as the student, but it's it would just make your path easier if your advisor's on board with that. Yeah, I think. I, it's easy for me to imagine that this person is picturing uh, a couple of different things. So one is, like you were saying, Sanjay, there's sort of like a difference between um, focusing on behaviors and then focusing on like deeper values. Um, I, and I, I think that was Samin that said that. Or maybe it was, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <Thanks. my bad. laughs> you guys I know, sound, I know exactly we sound alike. But uh, but I can imagine like not having a lot of conflict working with like putting myself in the graduate student's position with an advisor who say um, has a difference of opinion with me regarding like when you should post an open data set or something like that or thinking that um, confidentiality is a bigger issue than I do or think like things where you can get into the nitty gritty of the 
um, actual practices and have a difference of opinion. Mm. But if you are, yeah, consistently getting into scenarios where you and your advisor have different values, um, I think that's a very, very difficult and anxiety provoking situation to be in. Um, and, you know, it will result in positions where you think that you are doing the wrong thing. And I think that would be really um, much harder to take than having an advisor where on some of the practices you're your opinions don't align, but un like fundamentally your values do. But I do wonder what you guys think about how you would identify advisors who have the underlying values, because I think it's really tricky to tell, especially if you're just, if you're going based on what people say their values are. I think, you know, you can a little bit, I don't even know if this is like playing naive because if you're applying to graduate school, you are naive. But, you know, like during an interview, you can say things like, hey, I've been reading a lot about the changes going on in the field. Like, what do you think of pre-registration as your lab? And, and oftentimes, you know, like that's a setting where they're, they're not going to feel like they need to filter or hide from the public. And you can just say, like, are, are you doing this? And, and they'll be like... You know, actually, yes, the stuff you've been reading in the news, you know, it may sound really important, but it's a bunch of human scum, just, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. like, they'll say that stuff, they'll be very frank with you. And so I would, I think if you just like, ask them, like, I've been reading about this stuff, what do you think of it? They'll, I bet a lot of them will tell you. Yeah, so I would ask them and ask them for like, like, if they say, yeah, I agree, then say, oh, cool, have you started implementing that? You know, ask their grad students yeah. what they're doing. But the other thing I would do, honestly, and this depends which aspects of replicability and open science you care about, but, like, going back to what I was saying earlier about, like, for me, the fundamental thing is what counts as good evidence and so on, I would P-curve them. I mean, and it's a lot of work, but you could do, like, a half-assed P-curve. Because, like, I, I would be, like, you know, maybe they're one of those rare people that's not in tune with the open science movement has like maybe they're not on social media they're not in touch with the latest but they've just always had high standards of evidence for themselves that should show up in their p-curve of their papers so and and or maybe this opposite maybe they're very very transparent and they're like we'll post all our data we'll do this but they still p-hack the heck out of everything maybe they even pre-register but then p-hack and a p-curve would if there's enough papers in there would help you get a sense of that too. I mean, I, I'm not saying necessarily like do the statistical analysis that P-curve says and like determine if they're blah, 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 but like look at their papers, look at the key P-values, see if they're drawing strong conclusions from like a series of three studies where all the P-values are above 0.01 or something like that. And that, and if that's happening recently, then I would say that for me, given my values, that would be a sign of somebody, I probably would have a hard time agreeing on how to interpret a given uh, result. But I think there's also a lesson in here for faculty, if any faculty are listening, which is like, I think up until recently, it might have felt risky to like be open about your pro open science positions, if especially if you're not interested in like being a leader of the movement or whatever. You're just like, look, I just want to quietly do these practices myself. And I'm not like, I don't want to become a target or whatever. I don't want to wade into the political side of the debate, which I totally understand, but there is a cost because it will be harder for students to identify you as one of the people who are doing these things. So, I mean, now it's becoming easier because now you might actually have papers out that use these practices. But I think, you know, faculty should try to signal in a way that has like actual evidence behind it, not just words, but show what practices they care about, show what they consider like good standards of evidence, how they come to conclusions, what they think are important yeah, rigor, 
kind of signals in, in their work and other people's work. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <coughs> cool. All right. I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all. I, I really like that last piece because, yeah, I think students are getting more sophisticated. And I think that's another reason for, you know, for, for faculty to get on board with stuff is like, you know, their prospective students are, are going to be picking and choosing and the, the savvy ones are going to care about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, thank you, uh, aspiring scholar. Mm-hmm. And uh, thanks to people that write to us. If you, if you are listening and you want to email us with a question, you can reach us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, we are also reachable on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at BlackGoatPod. And if you go to the bio of that, you can also see our individual Twitter handles. We're on Facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. We're on Instagram.com slash BlackGoatPod. Uh, you can listen to us and rate us on iTunes. And we love to hear from people. And thank you so much for listening. Um, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about personality tests and... You know, the, they're kind of always in the news. It feels like they're, they've been in the news lately for a couple of reasons. There's, I think there's a new book that's, that's out about sort of the Myers-Briggs and, and some of the shortcomings of that, and, and there have been some news articles. Um, but, you know, personality testing, and specifically sort of popular personality testing, so, that, so outside of academic research, you know, when it's available to people on the Internet or when it's available you know, through your school's counseling center or through, you know, uh, like a career counseling center or, you know, other places like that, sort of there's good ones, there's not so good ones, and and what do we think? Um, And Alexa, you had mentioned on a recent episode that, like, you kind of like it when the Myers-Briggs comes up in conversation because Mm -hmm. it's sort of like you can be like, well, let me set you straight. Or that's not how you would approach it. That's how I would approach it because I'd be an obnoxious jerk. But, uh, yeah, so when it it comes up, like... I find it hard to not be obnoxious when I talk. (laughs) Because, I mean, it's like something where I have that semi-strong opinion about it. Um, And I think just people are like we're not interested in this to the extent that you are. And we don't care about like the reasons that you don't like this personality test. So just like calm down. I, I think I, <laughs> I think it's one of my more obnoxious moments when people bring up the Myers. Hypothetically speaking, if you were on online dating, would you immediately rule out anybody who <laughs> posts their Myers Briggs type? Uh, I, I, I don't think I would immediately rule someone out. Uh, it definitely rubs me the wrong way, but I try to overcome my initial impulse because I think if somebody posts their Myers-Briggs results, what it suggests is that like they're interested in personality um, and they are like they would be they would have fun talking about people's personalities and I would be into that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can forgive a non-psychologist for yeah. for not like I mean horoscope. Maybe. Yeah, I was going to say what about <laughs> astrology? <laughs> yeah. So so Alexa wouldn't. When yeah. you're, if you're like at a, you know, if you're, if you're at like a cocktail party or something and, and someone brings it up, like what, what's your, what's your sort of standard go-to points to dissuade someone from taking the Myers-Briggs too seriously? This feels a lot like I'm being quizzed by two personality psychologists right now, <laughs> but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> so, okay. So this is what I say to when, when people bring up the Myers-Briggs. First of all, I, and I, I'm always talking about the big five, which is my favorite personality test. Uh-oh, it's not Sanjay's <laughs> yes. favorite. You're in trouble. What? 
<laughs> no, it is. What do you mean? I thought you were a Hexaco person now. I, I I flirt with the six factor. I'm not. Uh, I'm I'm happy with five too. Um, so I usually say um, that one thing that's limiting about the Myers Briggs is that it puts you into one category versus another, which I think is probably something we'll end up talking about on the episode. Um, but that often people fall in the middle of these dimensions and the. Um, idea of categorizing someone that's called an ambivert that. alexa <laughs> <laughs> oh fucking i would not i would not um like someone on t- uh what's now i can't think bumble of- tinder yeah uh, right if they said that they were an ambivert that's so a I've deal left. breaker okay yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but then i also say about the myers-briggs that um my understanding of the myers-briggs is that it's based on like jungian theory and archetypes and um, the big five is based on how uh, people describe other people naturally. So um, that's another thing that I say to people when they um, they bring up the Myers-Briggs is I say, like, don't you want to take this like other test that's been developed by the people rather than developed by, you know, some like old famous psychologist. Um, so those are my those are my two things, I think. Also, I mean, I also find some of the categories like really not intuitive like what there's one that's like intuitive but that's because versus you're sensing? sensing and not intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference between intuitive and sensing come on yeah i think that's a, i think that's a, a well there's an extrovert introvert yeah that makes sense yeah yeah sure although the extrovert introvert gets uh it's not the same as extroversion introversion or it's not it's it's got some things in common. I think the Myers Briggs is responsible for like versions. a yes. lot of extroverts thinking they're introverts. Yes, because I know it that. says like <laughs> if you lose energy from interacting with people, then you're an introvert. It's like no, you're just human. Like you yeah. might lose energy <laughs> right. slower if you're an extrovert, but like if you expend I, yeah, energy, sure you lose true. it. <laughs> like that's yeah, yeah. Right. I think that is the Everybody most common fatigued. thing people Get think wrong. they know about yeah. personality. It's like the one most common piece of information they have. It's like, if you get your energy from hanging around people, then you're an extrovert. Yeah. Um, Which I agree leads people to categorize themselves as introverts. I think people way over categorize themselves as introverts. Yeah. Yeah. I've never, I've, it's funny. I've, I've looked around and I haven't seen really like solid empirical tests of that. And, and I've always been curious about that because like, yeah, the, um, the idea that, I mean, I poked around in some experience sampling data I had once and didn't see any sign of the effect, but it wasn't, it wasn't the most robust test because it wasn't like something I had designed the study to do or whatever. But I, you know, I was looking at like, does the correlation between being with other people and fatigue from moment to moment, is that stronger or weaker by extroversion, introversion? And there was no hmm. sign of that. I in, have those data, data too. You could see if you. We should we should do a paper. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think I mean, so so what is it about the Myers-Briggs then that's that's appealing? Right. I mean, I think the I think that types is one thing Mm -hmm. that's appeal that's appealing about because people categorical language gives you this sense of certainty. It's often how we talk conversationally. You know, a lot of our. I mean, you can use qualifiers, but a lot of our language, if you're just using single words, even the, the natural language that left ended up in the big five is, is you know, words that you, you can use in typological ways. So I think that's part of it. I, and I think the, the Jungian stuff is, you know, there may be some particulars about the Jungian stuff appeal to some people, but also just the idea that there's like what you're tapping into 
is some deeper explanation. Right. I think mm-hmm. that's... that it's it's getting it's getting this hidden. Uh, so I think one is it's getting hidden knowledge, things that you didn't know about yourself, and um, and so it's like it's revealing something, and it it's also and these are different, although I think they're related. So one is just it's things you didn't already know, and the second is that it's it's a sort of unifying explanation that it's not only information you know but it's a sort of tidy story Mm -hmm. it kind Mm -hmm. of pulls pulls a lot of disparate things together in a kind of in the same way that like i don't want to quite compare the myers-briggs to like conspiracy theories but one of the reasons conspiracy theories are appealing is the world is this crazy chaotic place and a conspiracy is like a very compact explanation for a lot of unrelated seeming things yeah i think there's something about having a theory behind a personality test and the Myers-Briggs does this but other personality tests do too that that makes it the, the, it makes the world feel like it makes sense or it doesn't even have to have a theory but just like if I told you like if somebody tried to sell the idea that like your ratio of your digit lengths of your fingers like put, could categorize you into somebody who prefers order versus somebody who prefers chaos and that would explain like everything about your life or whatever I don't think people would care what the like mechanism behind it is I think a lot of people would eat it up right a because right. it's not just a there self-report. is that theory for sexuality you know that right, right right yeah, yeah I think it's but yeah but this is like that one has a mechanism right it's testosterone levels in, yeah in your fetus but like imagine something just random whatever like if yeah sure if you're any or audi belly button that has like some like deep meaning about your personality or whatever or your blood type i guess which is like a really popular idea in japan i think mm-hmm. um so yeah like this this desire that something that you didn't know was a key to unlocking something about yourself like that's what mm-hmm. i think is that the types I think those two things explain like 80% of the popularity of the Myers-Briggs. And I understand that. I mean, it's the same thing I think that's behind why brain scans and heart rate monitors and other like kind of physiological explanations for psychological constructs are so compelling to people is because it goes, mm-hmm. it has the potential to go deeper than what a self-report or self-reflection right. could tell you. But unfortunately, when it comes to personality, there's not a lot of evidence that you can get way more validity than what you can get out of a self-report. Like I think you can add a little bit from like informant reports and some you know physiological behavioral you know other indicators but the bulk of the the valid variance there is to explain can be explained with self-reports i think even though i'm yeah, not i'm I, not like I'm, I'm often a skeptic of self-reports but yeah i think that's so that's another thing that again these things come together but you could tease them apart conceptually is is the sort of like it's maybe this is what i said before with hidden knowledge but it's it's not it's not familiar, right? Right, and so so the idea that like your blood type or, you know, we we love like brain scans mm-hmm. and physio measures of things that you could get better information that's not already available to you. Um, seems it it seems really appealing because it's like, yeah, I you know, I know like I have some ideas about what kind of person I am or what kind of person this other person is, but mm-hmm. I have no idea what my you know, blood type is right. unless I go get it tested or what my... Or what it means you know, about my personality, yeah. Right, or what my, my heart rate variability yeah. is, my, you know, what's my vagal tone? Oh, you have, <laughs> like, high vagal tone. Oh, that explains why I'm such a chill yeah. person or whatever. I once had a student... Ch- I might have had that backwards. I but, used to uh, teach a seminar yeah. on self-knowledge, and I had a student, he was a student in the business school that may or may not be relevant, I don't know, but he bought this T-shirt with a heart rate monitor in it, and he would wear it, and then he would, like, analyze his data. It was part of this... Oh shit! My dog is digging a hole, 
Anyway, oh, <laughs> um, so he would analyze. It was like the um, what do they call it? Like the people who study themselves. Oh, I'm blanking on the name of the movement, but um, it's like this layperson. Oh, the quanti- quantified, quantified self. self. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so he was in that movement, and so he like came to class one day, and he was like, I analyzed my data, and I figured out that I hate doing the dishes. Like my heart rate goes up, blah blah blah. And I was like, but if you if I had asked you a self report wouldn't you have said that you don't like doing the dishes? Like, is that really mm-hmm. new information? Um, but you never have experiences like that? Like where where someone else or something else identifies to you that you don't like something? Yeah, I do. I mean, that's part of why I study, like, self and other knowledge yeah. is because I've had right. experiences of other people seeing things about me that I didn't see. It's usually other people rather than, um, like, physiological data or things like yeah. that. It, it's yeah, rare sure. that I'm like, oh, yeah, my heart rate blah 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 that's why um but yeah i have had the experience but i think a lot of some of the time it's it's an illusion some of the time i actually did know if you had asked me beforehand i would have said the same thing it just feels Mm -hmm. like new knowledge because it's like expressed by something else or someone else but yeah Mm -hmm. i'm not saying it never happens i just think it's it's we already know most of what there is to know about ourselves so it's going to be rare and usually it's not going to come from these like really indirect markers like heart rate or blood type or whatever it's going to be something much closer to it like i like i noticed i get you know certain physical symptoms whenever i hang around certain people i won't go into um and yeah like i'm pretty (laughs) sure i mean that i also could have self-reported that i get anxious or like i'm i'm uncomfortable around those people but but it was interesting to notice that i that it's manifested in physical symptoms sometimes before when i know i'm gonna hang out with them but before i'm hanging out with them which is kind of interesting wouldn't it be cool if you wore a heart rate monitor t-shirt? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, so does does that mean that, like, we, you can only learn things that you already knew from taking a personality test? Like, maybe So there's, there's tests and self-report, way, but... and, like, technically something could be a personality test but not a self-report. So, like, an intelligence test is not a self-report. We don't ask you, like, how intelligent do you think you are or, or questions that I are, see. like, face yeah, valid. Yeah. So there are personality measures that are more like an intelligence test where it's, like, how you perform on it is supposed to tell mm-hmm. us about your personality. So, like, the narcissistic personality inventory is like that. So when I ask you if you oh. rule the world, would it be a better place? I'm yeah. not actually assessing whether you would be a good world ruler. I'm assessing whether you have narcissistic tendencies. So that would be considered a test rather than a self-report. So in principle, oh. a test that's not a self-report could t- tell you something that you didn't already know mm-hmm. more easily. It'd be more likely, more suited to doing that than a self-report, where a self-report basically summarizes what you told it. It does add like comparative information if there are norms. So I could tell you yeah. based on your answers, that based on what you told me about how extroverted you are, I could tell you that you're in the 80th percentile according to my test or whatever. Sure. And I can also synthesize it and categorize it in ways like, so with the big five or the six factor model, we have like empirical ways to cluster things, characteristics together. So I can tell you that like, I should sum your gregariousness score with your like uh, assertiveness score and other you know things that are cl- clustered together on extroversion and give you a sum score of extroversion, whereas you might not have intuitively put those into a sum score together. Yeah, sure. So there is. I don't want to like say that self reports don't add anything to what you would say about yourself, yeah. but it's that it's like uh, trimming the edges and like putting a better frame around it and getting more mm-hmm. detail rather than like giving you complete like there's no way you would go into a self-report thinking you're an extrovert having thought about it pretty clearly and thinking you're an extrovert and then come out of it learning that you're an introvert like that's almost never going to happen mm-hmm. yeah and i think the so so thinking about things like 
the like big five or big six self-report measures. I mean, I think that what they tend not to have is, is that sort of like we've revealed something you didn't know about yourself. And and I think, Samin, what you said is is really true that the the probably the two main things, maybe there's more, but the two main things they do is their way of organizing the information you know about yourself. So so grouping it into these factors and the the norms they're they're a way of telling you sort of more than you could tell otherwise like how does your view of yourself compare to other people's views of themselves which which you don't have access to except indirectly or through social comparison processes which can be biased or or whatever and then i think also you know the if you're able to give people correlates of these things sometimes they kind of know them uh, but they're not sure if they're true or not. You know, mm-hmm. I think like, and 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 that's a little risky on an individual level because all the associations are weak, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, when I when I teach intro to psych and I give my students the Big Five and and then I sort of you know I do a lecture where I talk about the Big Five and they've taken it and they know their scores. You know, I always try to be really careful when I get to like conscientiousness and I'm like, the more conscientious you are, the longer you live. And I'm like, but don't get depressed <laughs> if you score in the 20th percentile. You're not about to die. These are right. like really loose associations, yada, yada. Yeah. Um, but I think that's that's on a personal level. I think people tend even, you know, even the negative feedback My this is my more my sort of anecdotal experience, but um even even the the sort of like the quote unquote negative characteristics like people like learning about that they find it interesting to mm-hmm. learn like oh i'm high in neuroticism yeah, right. you know this this means that i'm more vulnerable to depression or anxiety and and you know that's that's kind of interesting to people my friends have not liked learning that actually i've gotten specific <laughs> feedback about people not wanting to have known their neuroticism score. but they already knew um, it i don't know i well, feel like i think so I think there's something that, okay, so in addition to like the norms and the correlates, and I have a couple of things to say about that, but also there, it lends like a legitimacy to yeah. um Well, and a false idea. precision. I think like when yes, I tell I you agree. you're in the 13th percentile, like yes. actually yeah. what I should say is like, I'm pretty sure you're below average. I think you might be yeah. extremely below average, something like that. Yeah, right. But the norms thing is interesting. So like, so, I mean, you use the example of you're not going to go in there thinking you're an extrovert and then conclude that you're an introvert, but you might do the opposite, right? Especially if you like um, have this idea of introverts that they are like people who sometimes get tired when they've been around people all day, right? Sure, but and specifically so with the word this, extroversion, like, I guess. Yeah, right. But I guess I mean I'm making the more general point that like sometimes we have like pretty skewed ideas about what norms are, mm. um, and so like learning about where you fall relative to other people on more concrete things um, can be like pretty interesting to learn, I think. And which is why I still want you to do yeah. the field guide to personality because I just like, I really want to know like the how often guide people to are crying. Well, so I also had this study idea because a lot of personality questionnaires, most of them ask about um, adjectives or general characteristics rather than concrete things. And that's yeah, for a good right. reason because concrete things, actions vary a lot from culture to culture and subculture and age and all that. Mm-hmm. So if I ask mm-hmm. like, how often do you cry? I can't really norm that. I'd have to norm it against like your peer group specifically for that to be a, a useful thing. But I actually think it would be huh. really cool to have norm data on that. So like I would yeah. love to get a representative sample of some broad enough population and ask like in the last and, and adjust the time span for each behavior so that it's you know somewhat possible to report accurately or remember accurately. Like how many books have you read? How often have you cried? How like because we I know what 
big five factors those are supposed to correlate with. And I know that they probably will correlate with those things, but like, it's one thing for me to know that I'm generally low on eroticism, but it's nothing for me to know. Like if I cry like once every six months as a 38 year old woman, does Mm -hmm. that make me like, does that put me much lower than other uh, my peers in that group or, or about the same or higher or whatever. I think it would be fascinating to know that. And we really don't know a lot about, I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to get that information, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. and there's something there's something interesting about individual differences in particular that I think people I think it's it's sort of that makes them different is that you by definition can't introspect about individual differences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, there so there are all these problems that we talk about with introspection that you might not have access to something or you might have certain biases, but when those things aren't in play, for a lot of things in psychology, you you could, in principle, introspect if those things didn't come in. So, so you know, an example would be like, you know, emotions. So you've had the experience of being very afraid, and you've had the experience of being not afraid at all, and you have memories of both of those things. And if if we're talking about things that that you have access to and that you don't have memory biases about, you you've objectively had those both of those experiences. Um, what you haven't had is the experience of having, I mean, a little bit to the extent that personality changes and within person variation is separate from this. But if we're talking about individual differences, you know, you've only had access to your own personality over the course of your life. You've indirectly mm-hmm. perceived other people's personalities. So you can connect your introspection to your social judgment or whatever, but that's a whole different can of worms Mm -hmm. and so I think one of the things for example that um, that personality inventories can do is like I mean one of the one of the things about the Myers-Briggs version of extroversion introversion and this is also a lot of popularizations of extroversion introversion is they describe introverts as being more kind of thoughtful, deeper people, they're thinkers, they're introspective people, they, they're into books and art and reading and things like that. And there's a sort of a selection effect where if you are an introvert who buys a book about introversion, then you're an introvert who likes books. Um, mm-hmm. And if the book tells you introverts like books, it's going to feel familiar. Um, but you can't introspect about what goes with what in the population because you only know what goes. So, you know, I'm an introvert and I like books. And so it totally makes sense that introverts like books. Um, and you don't have that introspective experience, but you know, what the research, and this is where the big five is useful is that it separates, you know, liking books and art and, and liking deep thoughts and everything is more in the domain of openness and, and what an inventory could tell you is that you're you're a shallow introvert or you or you're a deep thinking extrovert like Alexa is right and and so uh, yeah <laughs> and so so I think the but but it's just like those kinds of things the what goes with what are fundamentally inaccessible to introspection yeah, you, right. to looking inside of yourself and and so that's where I think like getting this kind of feedback also sometimes it's like the combination of things it's like oh like 
I knew I was this thing and I knew I was this other thing, but I never sort of thought about them going together and mm-hmm. I can see them all, you know, sort of organized in one place. And it can help you understand why you're different than other people who are the same on one dimension. So like I'm different than a lot of introverts because of my standing on other traits or whatever. And so you might be like, why, you know, this other person's also an introvert. Why are we so different or whatever? So like, yeah, I think knowing where to carve the like joints yeah. of personality can be really useful for that reason. I think something that I um, wouldn't have intuited is my understanding is that conscientiousness, conscientiousness and neuroticism are slightly correlated, but it's pretty small, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have the intuition that those two things go together. Like Positively. worrying a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that worrying a lot is like um, important to getting things done mm-hmm. and to being responsible and like... If you're not worrying about things, then you're going to let things slide. Yeah, but there's also the opposite stereotype. Like the person who has their shit together, who's like really on top of everything, right? That stereotype is like like the working mom who also volunteers and also does this, right? They're super conscientious and they like never seem stressed and they're always like on top of everything. Uh, I think like stereotypes exist of many combinations of these things. Hmm. Yeah. Like when you find out that someone always like gets does a great job on all their assignments or all their job assignments or whatever you probably assume they're not neurotic rather than assuming they are neurotic or yeah I both intuitions when you put it that way it's i when you put it that way that sounds reasonable so maybe it's true that like both combinations exist in my mind i think it's like the the process seems sensible in people's minds that though they're like worry is functional yeah but the other process okay. seems obvious too i think I think I could make a very compelling case for how the less I mean, that, you worry, that's the more where, you have your shit that's, together. That's where the research tells us. Because some people might, I mean, some people, probably probably most people at different times have both stereotypes, but mm-hmm. some people might more buy into one, some might more buy into the other. And yeah, some of that might be either yourself. So if you're a conscientious and neurotic person, you yeah, assume that's how conscientiousness yeah. works. Some of that mm-hmm. might be the people around you or the examples you think of at a moment in time. And so just being able to get the feedback that evaluates those things each on their own merits rather than sort of baking in a presumption that they do or don't go together one way or the other. I think that's some some of the value of personality mm-hmm. testing. Should we help sell people on the big five by talking about the big five in ourselves and each other to show how much fun it is to use yes, big please. five labels? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wonder how many people, I don't know if we're going to do ever do an episode on the big five. I, I mean, I, I find that a lot of people, even in psychology, especially if they're not personality psychologists, don't even know what the big five is or where it comes from. I don't know if we want to get all into I don't, that. I think we, we should skip that. that for now, but I think we should okay. say where we each yeah, stand we on the big five. Because I bet that's, I bet some of our listeners, like for one thing, if they've listened enough, they have an impression of us. So I think it would yeah. be interesting for us to say where we think we so- all stand. So we are we Do estimating not want to. our own <laughs> levels to. on the big five kind of thing? Yeah, I don't know. Our own or each other's. Or I, I want to do this. So I'm, I'm just asking about the <laughs> Maybe details. Maybe Alexa and I can do it and Sanjay can do the color commentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, are we saying our own or are we trying to guess each other's? Um, I, think I think I could do your personality, Simeon. I want to hear what and you And Sanjay. Think. Okay, I'll do... Okay, let's do this uh, personality psychologist versus social psychologist <laughs> thing again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to estimate your personalities, and then you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Um, okay. Okay, so I'll do Samin first. So Samin, um, we'll use the OCEAN acronym. Okay. All right. 
openness, high, very, very high. Um, conscientiousness, very high. Uh, extroversion, low, but not ridiculously low, below the median. Um, agreeableness, below the, be- slightly below the median. <laughs> Are you just being nice? <laughs> <laughs> and then neuroticism, quite low. Not the very bottom, but quite low. Um, you want to Yeah, I think I agree. Respond? Um, openness, I wouldn't put myself as high as I think you put me because I think I, uh, I'm not into like literature and art and music that much. I, some, a little bit literature, but, um, and then, um, conscientiousness also, I think I'm low on neatness. So that takes my score down from. Oh, I forgot about that. Good point. But other than that, I agree. I can't, I have no idea. On agreeableness, I know I'm below average, but I don't know if I'm like close to average or way below average. I feel like I have such a hard time knowing that about myself. That was the one I found hardest to write you on. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, th- this is another, so, and yeah, I mean, people don't, I think this is one of the reasons, this is where introspection also plays in is that, so, you know, we, there's like work on that the big five, like your, you know, Will Fleason's work suggesting that we all vary on all these across different moments in our life. And that when we talk about like Samin is moderately introverted, for example, we're kind of saying it's, it's a sort of weighted average of across the important situations in her life. But what we do have access to is our own variability. So we don't, you know, mm-hmm. in order for Samin to say like, I'm this amount of conscientiousness, let's say, she has to kind of say how much does she agree with these statements, which may or may not be sort of implicitly comparative. Um, but what she has really good access to is either moments in her life or domains of her life. Well, I'm I'm not very neat about, you know, how I maintain this one thing, but I, you know, I keep on top of my editorial stuff really well or whatever. And I, I find when I teach, um, I'm more and more aware that, like, because students love the sort of if-then signatures, the kind of, like, situationist stuff. And I think there is something intuitively appealing about, the situation is thing because we can introspect about well, how we vary across we don't, situations. I don't think we know that. So, th- I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I, I, I have a grant to study. I'm not this, talking about but, accuracy. Okay. I'm not talking okay. about accuracy. I'm saying we, we have access to it. a range of yeah. experiences. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have a paper that was never submitted for publication on that, on how accurate people are at rating their variability. But anyway. Yeah. Okay. Can I do Sanjay now? Go for it. Okay, so uh, openness, very high. Conscientiousness, uh, 75th percentile. Um, extroversion, I'm, I don't think about this that often. I would say also 75th percentile. Um, agreeableness, 60th percentile. Um, neuroticism, 75th percentile. A uh, high neuroticism. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. I would rate Sanjay a lot lower on extroversion. Yeah, I um, maybe below the mean. I, I think feel like I mean. have this like historical knowledge that Sanjay is more introverted, but like. But your impression is m- maybe it's from the, the podcast or something. Like, um, lately I see you as more extroverted than I think I did in the past. It's Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so so the way it's been a while. So I, if I go and fill out a big five now, I'm useless because yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. I know too much about it. But I think the 
you know, if I sort of think back to when I could actually, you know, fill it out before I knew too much about it. So I, I think I tend to score high in openness. Um, the last time I did the Big Five, I scored moderately low in conscientiousness. Hmm. And it was funny. It was it was a few years ago, and there was this, like, app. Um, I don't think it was the My Personality app, but there, but there was this thing, this app on Facebook in the early days of Facebook where you could fill it out, and then you could, like, tag your friends, and if they installed the app, they could answer it about you, and it would show you. I remember Kristen was the only one that matched me on my low conscientiousness mm-hmm. and she's like uh yeah i live with you mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and and i'll you know but uh yeah um but i have trouble rating my own conscientiousness because i think i have some some domains where i'm pretty good and some domains where i, I feel awful um yeah my extroversion i uh i think it's i think i've gone up in the course of my adulthood and i think it's more about roles and situations than it is about temperament like I feel temperamentally somewhat introverted but I perform extroversion a little more easily mm-hmm. um, and then yeah I think I'm like somewhat high on agreeableness but I kind of uh, have my limits um, neuroticism is funny I used to be and I don't know if I've gone up or what or just become more self-aware I used to be think of my both think of myself as and be thought of by other people as a really chill low neuroticism person and I, I think that I've gone up on that. Um, and, and certainly my self-view has gone up on that. Yeah, but, I yeah. think when I respond to neuroticism for you, I'm, I'm parroting what I think that you, things that I think that you have told me, not so much like how I think you act yeah. at all. I think that's common with I, neuroticism. We don't have much direct information unless we're really, really close to a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm pretty... Um, like I have a lot of sort of self-directed negative affect, but I think I'm like I'm a pretty calm person. You're not very hostile. Situ- <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not hostile, but also like I don't panic about external things. Mm. Like when when things around me are going to hell, like I think I can I can stay pretty level-headed about that. It's mm. it's my own sort of insecurities about myself where where I got my neuroticism from. Mm-hmm. That's probably, I don't know how common that is, but uh, yeah, that's the, I've actually, now, now that we're talking about it, I've never thought about this sort of like inner directed versus outer directed neuroticism. Not just like, internalizing, externalizing, but like the source of the stress. Right, yeah. right, yeah, yeah. I can't recall having seen that distinction made before. Yeah. We should do an episode where we talk about what aspects of our personality have changed over time. Yeah. I think yeah. that would be fascinating. <laughs> okay, let's do Alexa. So should we do Alexa? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Should we do it together? But we have to do E-A-C-N-O, none of this ocean stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, Wait, ha- we got to do it like real person. <laughs> the order of the factors should be in the order of the variance explained by each factor. So E-A-C-N-O. Yeah, that's, but that's not a word. Yeah. E-A-C-N-O. E-A-C-N-O, yeah. This is, this I, like, is how you can tell the difference between the personalities. When they put it in like ocean or Neo, A-C, I'm always like, nope, E-A-C-N-O. Like I'm not going to budge right. on that one. That's the hill I'm going to die on. Huh. Apparently, uh, Jack Block, who was not a fan of the Big Five, um, used to refer to it as the canoe model, yeah. um, just to sort of <laughs> like be a, a little order. bit uh, mm-hmm. cheeky about it. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. So, okay. so e- Alexa's E, very we're going to say very high. Yeah. Um, a. A, high. C, high. Yeah. You're just being nice. No, you're high on C for no. sure. I think you hide it. 
are. <laughs> I think you pretend to be lower on C than you are. And um, neuroticism, I you probably know better than I do, Samin. I I would put Alexa at sort of below the median, but not rock bottom. Oh, I would say she's the least neurotic person I've ever met in my life. I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think Samina estimates my neuroticism lower than almost anybody else. I think. But I also know you really well. That's yeah. you do know me maybe better than anybody else. I so. could. Yeah, be I think the the reason I was I was saying not rock bottom is more just regression to the mean right. than anything yeah. that makes me think well, she's. Yeah, and also most people hide their more not intentionally necessarily, but you don't see the most neurotic. So it's reasonable to assume that there's stuff that you don't see. Right. Um. Yeah, we can come back to that. Oh, and I'd say high, yeah. high openness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So ba- basically, Alexa's got the, the perfect high personality. Profile. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's socially, socially desirable, desirable yeah. and of every you dimension. If she, yeah, if you corrected for social desirability, her personality would go away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I don't think she's like so high on a, you know, like I think on agreeableness, I think she's like she has uh, i don't know i don't like it when people are too high on agreeableness so i think she's like in the sweet spot <laughs> so in a way she's even more socially de- did, did we get you right alexa uh i'm sometimes i'm unsure about neuroticism like i've wondered if i've changed be- i've become higher on neuroticism lately but i'm not sure we can, yeah we can talk about i think that part of my reason for being sure that you're so low on narcissism is that like when like you're stressed out about something that everybody would get stressed out about you're like maybe i'm neurotic and i'm like the fact that you think <laughs> that this makes you neurotic is like evidence that you're not neurotic because yeah. um and yeah i think that um we've maybe talked about this a bit on the podcast but i think i've been working on being a little bit less agreeable actually because i think that agreeableness can be a bad quality and can be annoying when you're pretty high um and you're not like sort of like yeah willing to stand up for things that you are important to you or whatever um but generally i think that you're right <laughs> yeah i think the conscientiousness cool. thing is interesting because i think uh, what would other people say about your conscientiousness I bet my grad students would say would would not say that I'm super high because oh, I I make mistakes often enough oh, yeah. that they I think would. Um, yeah, I don't think I, you're at the very top, but I think you're you're high. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, also like obviously like we're academics, so that heavily selects on yeah. uh, on openness and pretty heavily selects on conscientiousness and also right. on introversion, maybe a little. So, so to, to zoom, zoom back out a little bit to like the personality testing topic, like, is this, uh, like, so we're all into this cause we're psychologists. We know the big five, yada, yada. Like, is this just as good as if we said, you know, Alexa's, you know, we, we looked at Alexa's like Rorschach interpretations and we can tell that like. Deep down inside, you know, she wants to, you know, stab anybody with brown hair, you know, whatever. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you mean, is it as like satisfying the, or is it as accurate? Yeah. Or, or, or yeah. Is it no appealing? Okay. Like, is is this because I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, one of the interesting things about like, why? Why is the Myers-Briggs and but also like lots of why is handwriting analysis? Yeah. Why mm-hmm. is, you know, TAT pictures? Why are all these things like? really appealing and popular mm-hmm. and why hasn't the big five well taken off 
in and eclipsed all of to them. To call back, if it's more valid. To call back to our p-value episode which will have aired by the time this airs people like dichotomies or categories yeah, or, or cutoffs and actually i think yeah. one of like my friends and i sometimes for fun will like take a group of people like a group of characters on a tv show or whatever and then like we say okay on three we're gonna name the one who's highest on extroversion ready go and one two three and then like so that like turns this, these continuous dimensions into something that you can like agree or disagree on or rank people on like say this right. person's higher than that person and that but you could totally do that with a big five. And, right, and that's what I mean. most of the time when you take a big five test online, it'll give you usually not a dichotomy, but it'll give you like a couple, two, two three or five categories. It'll mm-hmm. say you're high or low, or it'll say you're high, medium or low, or, yes. or some of them mm-hmm. break into five. And, you know, people have done this with like really, I think really sort of potentially appealing feedback there's the star wars you know what star wars character is your agreeableness like or there's the harry potter you know chris soto i mean there's different harry potter personality things but i think chris soto made a website that actually it was the big five just sort of translated into you know so you're as agreeable as hagrid or whatever i think Um, like no it was harry potter houses i think and with the myers-briggs you can also say whether you're the same or different as somebody else or how different you can quantify that more easily so i think if we want to popularize a big five we need to come up (laughs) with like language and math or like you know sound ways with clear language to say like how similar two people are or in what ways they're different so that when you like meet somebody you can be like oh our biggest difference is on agreeableness or like we're really similar on openness but you know whatever yeah exactly like the nice thing about the letters in the myers-briggs is that you can see like immediately how much overlap you have with someone and also i think that's something that i don't know if the myers-briggs purports to offer this but i mean like astrology um for example talks about a lot about like compatibility right so i think one thing that's fun for people is to like learn that you're a certain type and this means that you are compatible with people of this other type or incompatible with other people of this type like that stuff is fun right. to talk yeah about. yeah i mean i i have so yeah i think being able to make certain interpretive claims about a compatibility i can see that i mean i have a i have a sort of like depressing uh not depressing but whatever like why the big five is less appealing which is just that it's it's free and you don't have to be an expert to get the interpretation so i think there's especially when you think about like yeah like businesses and counseling centers and things like that like there's this you know what there's some term in economics veblen good is that what it's called where like the more something costs, the more people want it, mm-hmm. um, which is usually applied to like luxury goods. Like, mm-hmm. why do, why would you want a Rolex watch instead of a Timex? Well, because the Rolex watch costs more, so it becomes mm-hmm. a status symbol. It's not exactly that, but it's kind of like that where there's a sense that like, oh, if, if you're paying for it and if everybody else is paying for it um, and you have to hire an expert to come and administer it and tell you what it means – that it, 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 it it's like this sort of heuristic cue of validity, yeah. whereas the Big Five is is free. You can go, you know, yeah. there's public domain instruments that are every bit as good as anything else, and, and you don't have to pay anybody to, to do it. There's less um, prestige yeah. and less mystery. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah, I think it's sad but true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've always thought that, like, I, I, and maybe people have tried this, but I, I remember with software when Linux was first sort of getting on the the radar. And Linux is free. And, you know, these businesses, and some of them ended up being pretty successful, you know, because there was this question of, like, how is anybody going to monetize Linux? Like, how are you going to build a business around selling Linux? 
this thing that's free. And what what businesses would do is they'd say, yeah, the software is free, but what we're selling you is this whole suite of services that go with it. And I, you know, I wondered like for personnel, for counseling, for things like that, you know, if you could build a business around like, yeah, the big five is free, but what we're going to do is we're going to pay people who actually know a lot about what it means and and who know how to sort of help you use it in an organization. And we're going to build a business around uh, something where, yeah, you could go take it for free and look up what it means, but the service is valuable to you. But I haven't seen anybody do that. I mean, even I think there are some commercial ones that are that are good. I think the Hogan, from from what I understand, um, seems like that's like legit. It's based on good psychometrics, all of that. But my I believe the instrument is still proprietary. I don't think you can just like go download the Hogan personality inventory and, and take it for free online. Um, and I've wondered if like if it would be a viable business to just say, yep, we're going to take the IPIP Neo or whatever yeah. that's totally free in public domain. I don't know. I find that even when I just talk to journalists, they immediately want to push me into things that there isn't good science on, like the compatibility question or like other things. And I think if you were trying to sell yourself as an expert and you had to often say, we don't know, or there is no mystery, there is no like effect there or whatever. Right. You probably wouldn't be very successful. I don't know, mm-hmm. yeah. but it'd be interesting. Who you're compa- who you're compatible with is like Alexa. Everybody's uh, compatible with Alexa. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think I think the the null hypothesis is not very appealing on right. that one. But mm-hmm. I think like I think there's good reason to think it's like certain social structural factors. Like, who are you going to end up mm-hmm. with? It's people of your socioeconomic background and race and your preferred gender and all these, like, mm-hmm. things that are either social structure or obvious, like your sexual orientation <laughs> determines, like, which half of the population or two-thirds of the population or whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, yeah, and then beyond that, it's just, like, Maybe there's just a lot of randomness in who you end up like. Well, and the other depressing you know. thing is there's just main effects, right? People with more desirable personalities yeah. are liked more. So everybody likes people right. like Alexa more. Like Alexa. Yeah, right. Yeah. So like, it's not a matching <laughs> thing. It's just like, who this makes a better partner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we should probably wrap up. But Alexa, do you want to, um, do you have like a t- Tinder handle that you want to <laughs> tell people about before we go? <laughs> It's called the agreeable ambivert. <laughs> the agreeable ambivert. <laughs> All right. I think that's probably a good place to stop. Um, so please uh, swipe. Which way are they supposed to swipe? Right? right. What's the good swipe? Right. Yeah. Swipe right on the agreeable ambivert, uh, and uh, <laughs> which which probably isn't Alexa. It's just there. There's probably really somebody with yeah, the agreeable ambivert who's going to suddenly get all these views, and they're like, "What the fuck just happened?" Uh, thank you all for listening uh, to the Black Goat, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye.